Good morning, Hickory Bible Church. All right, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the chapter of love, and we will be back in verse 4 again, because we only made it through six words last week, so it's going to be hard not to beat that this week. We are moving from maybe the green grasses of patience and kindness to a nasty weed patch today, not of what love is, but what love is not. And again, as I said last week, we are talking about action verbs. We're not talking about abstractions, mere ideologies or philosophies about love, because Paul is not trying to get the Corinthians who were having their own rough patch of uh, getting along in the church. He's not just trying to be another speaker in their day, another pontificator, another philosopher uh, that just wants to give some great ideas to admire. He's trying to give them priorities to pursue. And that is what love is about. In the church, in our relationships, wherever we are, love is not just some idea to keep on the shelf and look at and say, oh, how how nice love is. What a beautiful poem. What a wonderful greeting card. No, love is a priority of the Christian life to pursue. It's everything to us because the great command is going to be fulfilled when we love God with our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, and when we love our neighbors as ourselves. And so last week we saw the, the green grasses, I call them, patient and kindness, and, and those are wonderful places to be. But now we have some actions that love is not, and I call it a weed patch, a weed patch of self-love. So I thought about titling today's sermon, How to Know if You're a Narcissist. Too strong? Or if I go back into the vault of uh, pop hits from the 70s and 80s, I was thinking about naming it, You're So Vain, I Bet You Think This Sermon's About You. (laughs) Don't you? Don't you? Instead, I just landed on the heading, The Weed Patch of Self-Love, because I was studying it this week and and trying to get my mind around it and see, is there some arrangement to it uh, to give it a flow and... Truly, all I could think of is one of my least favorite things to do on planet Earth, which is to go weed in front of my house in the mulch beds. Because I don't know if you get the weeds I get, but they, they just sprawl. And then they put things down to anchor them in, and they overlap. And you stand there, and you just go, where do I even begin? And if there's ever a secret of weeding is there is no structure or arrangement or pattern. You just start pulling. And that's, in a sense, what we're looking at this morning. I don't have much of an arrangement for these eight negative qualities that love is not, other than to tell us, get on your gloves, it's time to start pulling. So follow with me as I read 1 Corinthians 13, from verse 4 through verse 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag, and it is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The grass withers and the flowers fade and the weeds of our sinful self-love continue to sprout, but the word of God endures forever. 
May he bless the preaching and hearing of it today. When I said the word narcissism, maybe in your mind it went to the Greek mythologies of the gods, one named Narcissus, who was a good-looking lad, fell in love with his own reflection in a pond, much to the dismay of the maidens around him who were hoping that he would choose them. And in the ultimate act of self-love, he stared himself into oblivion, the story goes. He decayed in the dirt of malnourishment and starvation. But alas, the bright side is, in that decayed dirt of Narcissus, up sprang the flowers that we have today so that downcast maidens from millennia can pick them. That's the myth behind what narcissism is, staring into our own picture of ourselves and falling in love with it. Modern psychology has added it in 2013 as a personality disorder. Not a sin, but something that can be dealt with by way of, I don't know what they would do for the narcissist to try to pull that weed. We refer to it in different terms maybe than self-love. We'll call it conceit, egotism, vanity, self-absorption, self-admiration. But the catch-all term that I think is going to fit best with the following uh, eight negative qualities that love is not would be self-love. And um, in our culture today, the problem is that we hear it said, or maybe we've said it, something along the lines of, you know, I just need to learn to love myself a little bit more. So we have a culture that now wants to extol self-love as the way out of your problems. Relationally, you go to some psychologist or somebody and say, you know, I have all these relational difficulties and in all likelihood, they're not going to probably tell you that you're the problem. If you have some low self-esteem or some, some, some problems you're dealing with, they'll eventually probably get to, you know, I, we've diagnosed the problem and it's not you. It's that you've just never been built up and so you need to love yourself more. When really what got you into that situation is probably that all the relationships you have are wrecked because you love yourself too much. Because the problem at the foundation of self-love is that when you're so focused inward, you have no margin for what? Looking outside of you. Looking up, first and foremost, to love God. And then having anything left over to love anybody else around you. And if you do embark on the, the noble quest to love someone outside of you, you, if you've never turned that thing that's going inward, as the reformers called, that we're curved in on ourselves and turned it out to see you need God in your life, you need the glory of Jesus Christ in your life, then even relationships you form will in some ways still exist to do what? Serve your own self-seeking needs. And, and that was the problem that Paul was dealing with in this church. Self-love. Now, he doesn't use the word in this letter to the Corinthians, but I found it in a different letter he wrote, and I want you to turn there. Because I, I don't want you to sit here and say, well, Adam, it's nice that you've kind of come down from your ivory tower looking down on everyone to determine that self-love is a sin rather than something to be extolled. Paul actually uses this exact word at the uh, midpoint of 2 Timothy. You could turn there. And in chapter 3, as he's warning the church at that time of the false teachers and the false believers that have made their way into the church, he just levels with them. 
He says, listen, realize this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Realize this, that in the last days, we're in those days, difficult times will come. It's not going to get easier to be a Christian and to be a church that stands for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And number one reason is because you're going to have some people that show up in your church and they're about to wreck it. So let me give you a litany of problems they're going to bring in when they come. And he lists 18 of them here. If you thought our list of eight over in 1 Corinthians 13 was something, Paul's got 18 in these last days. But the first one on the list, men, and he's speaking to the false teachers in the churches and the false believers that they deceive. Men will be lovers of self. First on the list. Because it's the opposite of what's first on the list of a true believer. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Or as Jesus said in John 13, you'll know my disciples by their love. So if somebody was going to be masquerading as a Christian, as a teacher in the church and trying to win people to them, they might even appear as loving. But what kind of love is it? If they're deceiving you, it might look and sound like love, but it's self-love. And in the church... In the last days, that sin that was now once out in the world has now made it into the church. And if we're not careful, Paul's warning, the first type of deadly sin that can poison the church is this love of self, fondness of self, what we would call narcissism. But see, it doesn't end there. Self-love inevitably will produce more sin. And so the next 17 sins on this list all start with self-love because self-love won't be satisfied until it gets what it wants. All its pleasures, all its lusts, all its desires, stopping at no end to seek them. John MacArthur wrote of this verse and this list of 18 sins with love of self at the front. The first characteristic is that these men will be lovers of self. The pride of self-love is the pervasive deadly sin that grips the human soul and is the foundation sin of all the others. It might be called the sewer out of which the rest of these ugly sins are discharged. Where love of self takes root, it's going to choke out any love for God. And in that absence, hatred and self-seeking and all these, all these sins, love of money, boastful, arrogant, reviling, disobedient, ungrateful, and holy. Where does it start? It starts with self-love. It starts with you being in the center of the universe and all things having to revolve around you and what you want to get. And it has no room for others. Self-love began with Satan's sin, didn't it? In love with himself as an angel, turned him into a what? Turned him into a devil, a demon. In love with himself, with no love for his creator. And what type of uh, deception did he pull on Adam and Eve? Oh, serve yourself. Take a bite. Get what you want. You deserve it. You need to be like God. Appeal to their self-love. And then look what self-love did to Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. Genesis 4. We know from the commentary in 1 John 4 that it was a lack of love for his brother that motivated this thing. That's why John argues that how can you say you love God and hate your brother? And in 1 John 4, 10 to 12, who does he reference? The first most heinous act of hatred in the Bible, Cain killing his brother Abel back in Genesis chapter 4. It came about, 
Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel brought an offering of the fruit, first fruits of his flock. One obeyed God out of love for God. One disobeyed God out of contempt for God. And the Lord had regard for Abel, but for Cain he had none. And Cain became angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to him, why are you angry? And God warned him and tried to help him to see that sin's right at the door of your heart and it wants to desire you. It's to own you. It's to rule you. It's that anger we talked about last week, the thumos that wells up in us. And he goes and he kills his brother. So the first murder, what was it triggered by? Self, self-love. Self-love, lack of love for brother, lack of love for God that turned into envy of his brother and that envy turned into hatred and that hatred turned into what? Murder. So what's at the beginning? What's that sewer out of which all the other sins pour? Self-love. Throughout church history, theologians have seen how this sin is devastating to humanity as well as the church. And in City of God, written by Augustine of Hippo, he wrote, two cities have been sound, founded by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. You see the difference? We just sang, of which foundation are you going to build your house on? If you build it centered on self-love, it'll be built with contempt to God. But if you build it on the foundation of a love for God, you actually, in that, be building it on contempt of your own self. Now, this isn't self-hatred. You know, this isn't going around saying, oh, I'm just this depraved sinner, not worth anything. Look, you're, you have God's image in you. Psalm 139 says, created in his image in Genesis, fearfully and wonderfully made. But sin corrupts that image of God in you and turns you in. And it will stop at no end, like a black hole out in the universe. It just doesn't want to consume you, turning you inward. What's it want to do? Anything that gets near that black hole, it wants to suck it into the oblivion of its own insistence on its own way and its own rights and its own desires until everything around you will be ruined and the enemy will have had his way again. So you think self-love's pretty serious? What are we to do with the battle for our hearts, our affections, our loves between earthly love of self and heavenly love of God? Another church theologian, John Calvin, pointed us to this blunt assessment, but also the remedy. He said, for so blindly do we all rush in the direction of self-love that everyone thinks he has a good reason for exalting himself. It's pride. I'm the exception to the rule. I really do have a good reason to be so about me. But he says, there's no other remedy than to pluck up by the roots that most noxious pest, self-love. So we're back to where we started, aren't we? The only way to deal with it is to see it for what it is, call it for what it is, and start to pull. So let's weed, shall we? Weed number one of self-love, jealousy, as Shakespeare called it, the green-eyed monster there in verse four, staring back at us. Love is not jealous. Remember, this is action. This is the way love actually produces fruit in our lives in the first negative quality that love is not that Paul brings to the surface is jealousy. And we already illustrated it with Cain out of envy for his brother and his right offering. And that's really the perfect picture of what envy and jealousy does. It wants to look at something good in someone else and be grieved at it rather than rejoice in it. 
It can't stand to see someone else succeed, someone else's happiness, someone else's success. Because at the heart, it wants it for itself. It has no room for a universe in which God could possibly, what? Show grace to someone besides that person. Or at least if he's going to show grace to someone else, can they get in line behind me? Can I be first? That's what self-love that's jealous wants to do. Now, here's the reality with this word before we, you know, I get, well, you wouldn't know, not looking in the Greek, but this word for jealous is actually analogous to the word we have, zealous. In its neutral form in the Greek, it actually can be used for good. So up in verse 31, when we talked a couple weeks ago about earnestly desire the greater gifts, that word in 31 is the same word here in verse 4. How can it be? Because Paul could say, there's this good thing about zeal that stirs you to action, that makes you enthusiastic, that gives you excitement for the things of the Lord. Pursue that. But you start, even for a moment, thinking about how that pursuit of that gift and you doing something isn't for the common good of somewhere else. Who's it going to be for? It's going to be for you. And that's what the Corinthian Christians had started doing. Taking the zeal for gifts and this enthusiasm. There are these new believers, but because of false teachers and false livers around them, they're seeing, wait a second. That person's getting more credit. That person's getting more of the spotlight in the church. Now that Paul's gone, maybe I could eke in with my sermons, with my songs. And so it was complete chaos in this church with everybody competing for the attention. Of what? Top dog? I mean, this is what Paul instructs in verse 14. He's not commending them in chapter 14, verse 26. He says, look, <laughs> I mean, it's chaos where you guys are. What's the outcome when you guys get together? He says, when you assemble... Each one has a psalm, each one has a teaching, each one has a revelation, each one has a tongue, has an interpretation. That's not a compliment. He's saying your services are complete and utter bedlam, and it's rooted and grounded in your insistence that you need to be heard. So put yourself in that position in this church. If everybody showed up and, ah, you know, I know Adam up gets up there and does his thing, but I got something to say today. And then that guy in the back shows up, well, I got something to say. And then I got, I want to sing something. I'm not done singing. And with no care or consideration for, one, order in the church, verse 40, but edification of others, it's pure madness. And it's rooted and grounded in what? Competition, spirit of division. Go back to chapter 3. Paul addresses this. This is actually not, as I'm making the case, that self-love is that first sin that unleashes everything else, and that first sin of self-love that you see sprout up is that of jealousy. I just can't be okay with someone else having the spotlight. So 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, Paul has to establish the gospel and how he brought it to them, and it wasn't about the Paul show, just as it wasn't about Apollos. It wasn't about anybody. But the first sin he actually has to address in chapter 3 is the sin of their jealousy. He says, you guys, this jealousy you got going around, you know what it's making you do? It's making you act like a bunch of spiritual babies. So he says, chapter three, I can't address you as spiritual men, maturity. I gotta address you as carnal people, men of the flesh. That's what that word means. As infants in Christ. And as if to say, listen, I came with the teaching of the gospel. I can't even move past the gospel because if I give you anything more than the gospel, any other teaching, you're gonna take it and twist it. You're going to turn it into some competition. Oh, I learned this from Paul. What'd you learn? Well, I'm over here, you know, I learned about this thing, the gospel. I guess it's okay. Yeah, but over here, Paul taught us in secret. He goes, I can't even teach you anything beyond 
the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ in the gospel. Why? Because you're still fleshly, verse 3. It's right there in front of us. And since there is jealousy and strife among you, are not being fleshly, walking like mere men? And the whole reason was this party spirit, this strife, this, this competition of who's behind who and who learned from what guy and which guy has the best speaking gifts. And I, I, you know, I get this jealousy if this guy over here says, well, I got to hear him, and this is what he said. Of course, it's nothing like the church today, right? So you could take this good word for zeal. I mean, it's that same word in John 2, 17 when Jesus cleared the temple and the disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. It could be a good thing directed in the right way. Zeal for God's holiness and glory, edification and building up of other people, but turned and twisted in Galatians 5, 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and jealousy. True biblical love, and I'm just trying to get that connection in our mind between these words. True biblical love is zealous, never jealous of God's goodness and kindness to others, not just me. That's really what's at the heart of jealousy. Is, is I, I should be zealous for God to work in my life. We all should be. I mean, I don't know anybody that's sitting around saying, like, ah, I'm okay with being an average Christian. <laughs> right? I mean, unless you are, I pack up and, you know, a 10-minute sermon would do. It's not self-righteous to say, man, I really want to get all that God would have for me in Christ, all that the Spirit could offer, all that I could learn. I want to suck it up. I want to grow up. That's a good thing. But see, when it's just all about you, and not saying, but see, all of that growth in me is not just to only benefit me, it's for the good of the body of Christ, and it's for the evangelization of the lost. But these people in Corinth had just taken zeal and turned it into a party spirit, a competition. So the question is, how do we detect it around our church? Well, first, how do you detect it in yourself? Do you ever find yourself thinking to yourself, how come that guy always gets asked to speak at the men's events and I don't? How come that lady always gets asked to be on the uh, planning team for the retreats? Or she's always, you know, they always want to bring her in to get her ideas, and they never ask me. If you find yourself doing that, you're heading down the path. It's great to want to be involved, but to always just be looking around saying, why did they get that chance? Why did they get that exaltation, if you want to call it that? Well, the reality is, if you're always at the center of that question, then you'll always be at the center of the problem. As Jerry told me a few weeks ago, when me, myself, and I show up at the church, you're going to have problems. Love doesn't do that. Paul's saying here, love isn't pained or vexed by someone else's good. Love isn't keeping tabs on who got this and who got that. It's not, it's not fighting and striving to get something someone else has, like toddlers playing together, twins in fact. I was watching them play this week and there was unfolding before me exactly what I was going to say. One guy grabs the blue car, other guy wants the blue car. There are 74 other cars on the ground. So put the Bible down. I was really reading the Bible. I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. I'm going to get to that later. Boasting is the next point. So I'm like, okay, guys, we got to work this out. 
Reasoning with a toddler usually doesn't work though. So I just get to work. I find another car that looks almost the same as the blue car. It's red. And I go to the other guy. Can you just take this car? It's a red car. It's the same make and model. Seriously, flip them over. You could read it. No, he wants the blue car. And they're fighting over the blue car. And then finally, this guy drops the blue car and goes, gets the extra sketch. This guy drops the red car and goes and gets a yellow one. There's no rhyme or reason to it. What am I illustrating? The pure, carnal immaturity of what? A toddler. I just want what someone else's has. And the moment they drop it, I actually don't want it anymore. It's just that they had it and I didn't. Now, it's acceptable behavior to some degree, or expected, I should say, in toddlers. But what is it in adult Christians? Arrested development. You should grow up. I mean, he wasn't commending them, saying, I could only feed you spiritual milk back in chapter 3. Here's the principle behind it. Some of the most spiritually gifted people in the church can be the most immature. Because spiritual gifts don't equal spiritual graces. Try to find the connection. That if I got this certain gift, then I'm going to be the most grace-filled? Nope. You could be the most spiritually gifted person in the least grace-filled if you're not walking in the Spirit and you're satisfying the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5 says. So, so don't fool yourself or let yourself get fooled mistaking giftedness for grace. The grace gifts being the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. So how do you get out of that if you're in it? If gifts don't produce grace, what does? Gratitude. I mean, that's the theology we live by in love, isn't it? We have a theology around here, not of works, but of grace. That it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And not of ourselves, so that none of us may boast. So if you really get your justification right, Christian, and if you really understand that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, the, the, the heartbeat of your theology of your ethics no longer just what you believe in your salvation, but what you need to believe for your sanctification is now a theology of gratitude. That's my ethic. That if I see what God has done for me in Christ, why should I be around here uh, upset and maligning and, and bummed out about other people getting something I don't have rather than be thankful for what I do have, thankful for what God gave them, and just get after the work? Grace has to lead to gratitude, and that's the only way you get out of this thing. When you're thankful for the grace you have rather than the jealous of the grace someone else has. Spoiler alert, we're all recipients of grace. So look around the room. Every single one of us in Christ here is a recipient of the saving grace of God in Christ. And even if you're not in Christ in this room, you're a recipient in this very moment of the common grace of God. We're all breathing the same air. We're all in the same comfortable air conditioning. Clothed maybe in our right minds. So you can't sit around here and, and say, yeah, but I saw the car that person drove in in, or I, I know what this person gets to do in the church. We're not going there. We're just saying, has God, sinner, has God shown you grace in Christ? If he has, is that enough? Maybe a question to probe a little bit deeper. What is it that triggers envy in you? Because we all have a trigger. There's something that kicks in the green-eyed monster. I don't think any Christian lives just permanently in the state of envy. 
but for you, you, you know, there's this idea that we might not think we're jealous people or envious people until what? The right circumstance allows it to be seen. So we go around a lot of times in our sin, oh, I'm not an angry person. <laughs> we get angry, we really say that. And they say, no, it just needed that thing to show you actually have it in you. When it comes to jealousy, what's at the trigger? I was thinking green for jealousy. And uh, maybe I asked this question, what is it that waters the grass of your jealousy? I was looking at my grass dying this week after like the eighth day in a row of heat. I had mowed, I don't know how long ago. And then, of course, it just doesn't rain for eight days. So this, this lawn I own owns me. It's, it's nasty. I mean, it's a glorified weed patch in a lot of ways. It's brown, and it looks awful. And yesterday the rains come, and, you know, after the downpour, the sun sparkles a little bit, and suddenly I start to see color again. And I'm like, whoa, I have a great lawn. All it needed was a little bit of watering to come to life again. Or my wife this week, I was making a salad and I find this head of lettuce that looks really uh, decrepit. And I'm like, should I just throw this out? And she's like, no, get a bowl of water, ice water, put it in, it'll come back to life. I'm like, no way, as if I know that. <laughs> and sure enough, I walk away five minutes later, come back, man, that thing was awesome and it's crispy and flavorful and it's green. And it made me think of envy. This is, it can lie dormant. It could look decayed. We could think we're past it. What is it, though, that triggers it is my question for you today. Because we all have it. We just need to identify what it is in our hearts that triggers the envy and do work there. Rather than just be, like, generally concerned about it. Look around your life. Look around the way you interact in the church or when you, other people. Maybe it's something as material as, you know, a new F-250. Cool. If that's what causes it, figure out why you love F-250s. But I'm sure it's something deeper than that. And that's where you have to ask the Holy Spirit to do that work in your heart. So start there at the weed of jealousy. See, we can get to work yanking it out. Weed number two of self-love. We only have seven more to go, so take a deep breath. Weed two of self-love is boasting, as mentioned before by the one talking. Remember a phrase, the world's smallest package is a man wrapped up in himself. I don't know who to give credit to for that because it's usually Ben Franklin or Abe Lincoln or C.S. Lewis, so you do with that what you will. But it's a good image, isn't it? You know, somebody's just continually putting a bunch of packaging verbally around their life to try to look great, and at the end, you have a really small package. Love doesn't boast. The word means vain glory, that there is a glory that we can have as image bearers, but the one we seek for ourselves ends up being vanity, chasing after the wind. Uh, in the time that Paul wrote this, it was, even though there were a lot of talkers back then, boasting was not thought highly of by the philosophers. Emperor Marcus Aurelius wrote a rhetorical form of boasting wounds others. It causes unrest and discord and represents unfounded presumption. That's a good way to say it. Our boasting represents unfounded presumption, as in I think this about me, but it's definitely exaggerated. You know, I, I'm, I'm not only reading my own headlines, I'm writing them and then distributing them for everybody else. The Greeks were against talk that was cheap. They wanted men of action. 
And so even this idea that Paul's using that love is not boastful, it's because one, it's calling all the attention to you because you can't back to jealousy, bear for someone else to get some spotlight. But it's also just empty because it leads to nothing. It's warned against in the Proverbs. You can turn there yourself, Proverbs 27, verses 1 and 2, or just listen to me read it. It warns us against, first, don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day might bring. So what kind of boasting is that? I would probably be a self, uh, you know, a, a self-wisdom that I know what tomorrow's going to bring, or this is how this is going to go. If you find yourself always going around giving unsolicited advice to somebody on, you know, if you do it this way, this is how it's going to turn out. So that might be what he's warning about, or the Proverbs 27.1, don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring forth. But he then turns it personal. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. So it could be you boasting about tomorrow, your own wisdom of what you think you know that you don't know. Or you could be boasting in what? Just yourself. Your own ways, your own works, your own wisdom. I'm the best. It's poison. It'll make you sick. It tastes sweet, Proverbs 25, 27. It is not good to eat too much honey, nor is it glory to search out one's own glory. What connection is the writer in Proverbs making? You like something sweet? You like it as long as what? You have it in moderation. What happens when you go all in on the thing? You eat the entire vat of Cool Whip. See, you're sick already just thinking about that, aren't you? It's sweet for a little bit, that first taste of glory, but when in boasting, you seek it out for yourself. That's the problem he's saying here. There's no glory in the search because you'll find yourself coming up empty you're not able to contain that kind of glory. Nobody is. Don't believe your own press. One writer said, the man who must brag for himself knows deep down that no one else will. So there's an element of insecurity in it, isn't there? The man who will brag for himself knows deep down that no one else will. Maybe that's the thing you gotta draw out of your heart today. If you find yourself boasting, in whatever variety of ways. In the church, of course, you know, you, this person did this and you gotta kinda get in your thing in life group about what you did. Uh, or, or just in life, you know, you've always been around that kind of guy that, you know, you tell a story and he has to tell a better one. So you tell a better one and Johnny one up, we call him, and it just keeps going until somebody is like, like everybody else has left the room and it's just you and that guy because you gotta what? have the better story, have the better boast. But in that moment of bragging on you, the only person you're loving is yourself because you're just trying to be the attention getter in the story. So what's the solution? Well, it's to don't be like Narcissus of looking down. If you want a good measure of yourself and boasting, look up. First, look up to God. There's nothing that'll get you a more accurate view of yourself, spiritually speaking, than with God and in Christ, and his son. And those are all the right things to look up to. But then also look out and just be willing to say, man, look at all these other wonderful people that deserve some press as well. So solution one, maybe to get out of the, the quandary of boasting, find somebody who's not full of empty words, as in flattery, and maybe today or sometime this week, say, hey, I'm trying to apply that. Whether it's in the church or just in my life, Brother or sister, do I have a problem with talking too much about myself? And maybe they say, yeah, you talk a lot about yourself. I wouldn't call it boasting. You just, well, it's still a form of self-love if you're the kind of point of the story all the time. 
But somebody that really loves you will tell you that straight up. So that's one way is help somebody else to help you see it because the irony is most of us, if not all of us, can really easily hear it in other people, can't we? We just have a hard time hearing it in ourselves. We kind of get used to our own voice. Second thing is get into the habit of talking others up. Use your words, as Paul would say, about using our spiritual gifts. Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Well, that goes with our words as well. God's given you words to use, not to just kind of be a boomerang and throw them out so they come back to you, but your words are there to build somebody else up, to fire them off like arrows with no expectation of return. I remember reading the book called Humility by C.J. Mahaney. You know, I had figured I'd mastered it, but what, why would it, you know, not bad to read another one. Um, but in that book, he did say one of the ways to help fight pride and foster humility is just to recognize God's grace in someone else and say it. And just get used to using your speech to edify and build others up rather than be critical and tear them down and use your words to build yourself up because that building up is going nowhere. It's actually what brings us to our next point. The person that's building themselves up is a person that's building a house with balloons, not bricks. Weed three of self-love is arrogance. It kind of works as the yin to the yang of boasting. If, if boasting is you actively talking about yourself, arrogance, this next one, love is not arrogant, uh, is this idea of an attitude on the inside a person full of themselves. And why I use this idea of somebody being full of hot air like a balloon is, is because the Greek word is fusa. Sounds a lot like what? The bellows. That's actually where the uh, word came from, from this, this, this thing you would pump to what? Get the air into the fire to build that fire up higher. And that's this word for arrogance. That's the word picture. Somebody just being blown up, inflated by their own interest in themselves. Now, here's the tricky part with this one. Um, it might be harder to detect. It, you know, I remember somebody asking me one time for feedback, and they, they wanted to know if I thought they were prideful or arrogant. And I said, well, honestly, I don't see any fruits of it on the outside, but that doesn't get you off the hook because you could really think highly of yourself on the inside. I mean, that's what arrogance is. It's an attitude on the inside that makes much of self. And maybe because of social graces knows that I'm not going to go around boasting in me, but I'm going to go around doing things that others can see to kind of build me up because I love the applause of man. And now I'm not doing it for the Lord. I'm just doing it to hear people thank me. So that's arrogance in a nutshell. In the church in Corinth, Paul has to... Um, rebuke them at multiple points for their arrogance. Four times he talks about them having become arrogant, so much so that it's part of their reputation when he's writing them a letter. Starting back in chapter four, and you can just kind of follow the path I'm on, the first way that they were arrogant or puffed up or all about themselves was in how they treated each other. And this goes back to chapter three of their quarreling and fighting, but he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, now these things, brothers, I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos, and that, those were the two guys everybody was picking party sides with. I've done it for your sakes. I'm just using myself as an example, not to puff me up, but for you to see the stupidity of what you guys are getting into and these arguing over who's the best and who taught you and discipled you. But I'm doing it so that in that you might learn to exceed what is written, that you guys are to submit to what that is being said to you. 
Why? So that none of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Paul has to lay down the law here. You guys are missing the point. You're becoming arrogant against one another over what? Dividing over the word of God just because of the person you heard it from? Is that how that's supposed to work? Talk about it like ultimately missing the point. So the first way that they were arrogant or puffed up was just towards each other and who they were getting behind. But then later on, because Paul doesn't show up, even though he's the reason the gospel showed up to Corinth, verse 18 and 19 in chapter 4, if you look there, he says, now some have become arrogant as though I was not coming to you. Now they're becoming arrogant towards Paul. They're being puffed up towards the guy that brought them the gospel. How prideful is that? I mean, if they were in a membership interview at the church at Corinth, and they said, oh, tell us about your testimony. Oh, yeah, well, you know, I came to Christ. Oh, how'd that happen? Well, this guy, Paul. Who? Yeah, Paul. Oh, that's how you came to Christ, the apostle Paul? That's awesome. But they don't want to give him credit anymore. They've become arrogant against him because he hasn't, what, come back in person. You know, he's busy planting churches all around the Mediterranean. But they become so puffed up in themselves, built up in their own knowledge, thinking they're these super apostles, they're these wonderful teachers, that now they say, yeah, you know, he doesn't even have time for us. What do we need him? But then he says, I will come to you soon, verse 19, and I'll find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but do they really have any power behind them, or are they just what? Boasters. Hot air. Next, they become arrogant in their sin. If you've been with me so far, look at chapter 5. I mean, moving from the sin of being arrogant against Paul and one another, now they're arrogant actually about sin they're allowing in their midst, as if it's no big deal. Chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported. I mean, that's just a moment you're picturing him writing this down like this. It's got, really, guys? It's actually reported there is immorality among you worse than even in the what? Gentile world. How about that for a church have to hear from their founding pastor? You guys are, are allowing a sin and becoming puffed up over this thing? The world doesn't even allow this, that someone has had his father's wife. What a grotesque form of adultery. What's their response? You've become arrogant and not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. They're so proud of themselves that won't, they, they couldn't even dare to look in the mirror and see the blemishes that are there. And he's saying this is such an obvious sin even the world wouldn't tolerate. They're arrogant in their sin. They're arrogant to their founding pastor. They're arrogant towards one another. And then the one that we're probably familiar with, turn a couple chapters over to chapter eight, they're arrogant in their knowledge. We've heard this used before. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So what's Paul doing there? Well, first we have to use, you know, the analogy of faith, scripture to know scripture. We can't like some might be tempted to say, ah, there goes knowledge again. Get somebody with a Bible and a systematic theology and learning doctrine, they're going to get arrogant. No, don't throw the baby of knowledge out in the bathwater of arrogance. You can keep those things separate in your mind right now. Knowledge can make you arrogant if it just is all about what you know. And then you use it to lord over people. That's what he's saying right here. But if you actually take your knowledge and use it in love, it'll build up the body. We know knowledge is a good thing because back in chapter 12, it's a gift from the Spirit. So you can't have competing ideas of is knowledge good or bad. 
It's good. It's a God-given grace. It's knowing more about the God who created us and all the wonderful truths around them. But he's saying, look, some of you in the church, you've become mature. You know some things. And you're getting around these newer believers, these ones, and he uses um, idol worship as the example here. You know, I got to write to you about these idols. There's some weak believers in the church who have just come out of their pagan background, and you mature believers, rather than putting your arm around them and saying, hey, let, let me walk you through how you think about this. Instead of putting your arm around them, you're stiff-arming them, and you're making them feel stupid because you mature believer, yeah, you have the knowledge. You know there's no, no such thing as a false god. I mean, there's only one true god. So whatever idols are around Corinth that people are still worshiping, and, and because of that, some new Christian who just comes out of that says, I can't go back to that place. I'm not going to go buy meat there anymore. There's a false god there. Well, don't be puffed up and say, listen, bud, there's no such thing. Get over it. Have some chicken. No, he's saying bear with them in their weakness. Otherwise, you've taken that knowledge, and it's puffed you up, but it's not built anybody up. That's the point he's making about knowledge. It all goes back to this same heartbreak in Paul, which is you're not using your gifts and love to build people up. And that can happen in this church as much as it happened there. When we have gifts without graces, anything can happen. And that's where you, why this letter exists. Because their gifts were leaving behind the grace of God and love. You have every single sin in this church that you can imagine. Maybe the most gifted church there is because he says at the beginning, you have all the gifts. And he's mentioned them all in chapter 12 and in chapter 14. But he says, look at all the sin problems in your church because you guys are just, what, leaving behind love. You're not really caring for anybody else but yourself. So, as we have to deal with arrogance in our own lives, how do we do it? Especially how do we do it in a church where we... we um, we don't want to take like the, the, the option of, well, if, if I become puffed up by using my gifts, I guess what I should do is just go be a monk, right? I, I should just go and live by myself where I'm not going to be tempted to be arrogant about using my gifts. Well, see, the problem there is you took your sin with you. So that same arrogance that doesn't work in the corporate body, you'll use in isolation, right? Man, aren't I great that I was willing to give up being part of the body of Christ so that I could just be here by learning about God on my own? apart from any people. You know, they just couldn't handle my knowledge. No, it's not to remove yourself from the situation. It's to deal with your sin. So if somebody, you're using your gifts in the church and people commend you for it, thank you for it, or appreciative of it, as the same solution to jealousy was gratitude, so it is here. Just turn it into gratitude because it's God who gave you the gift. And also be thankful that, wow, you were built up by that. Whatever that was they're thanking you for, Awesome. Praise God. And I know that sounds like, that, that's the, yeah, gratitude will get you out of it because you're rightly identifying where the grace comes from. So be thankful for that person wanting to build you up. Be thankful to God. And then my other tip would be stay moving, as in move on quickly. Don't dwell in the idea of receiving thanks of like, oh, I'm just gonna meditate on that the whole ride home. Move on to the next thing. Who's the next person you would bless? If somebody thanks you for some way you served, Move it forward. Where, who's next on the list? That was a mentor of mine in, in preaching. He, he gave me that advice. He said, Adam, you're only as bad as your last sermon and as good as your next, so keep moving. That's good advice. You know, you may think you dropped the ball somewhere serving in the church. Hey, put it behind you. Learn from it. 
But you're only going to be as useful as the next time you use your gift, right? There's no neutral in the Christian life. So keep it in drive and keep moving forward. We only have time for one more. Weed four, self-love, indecency. Back to 1 Corinthians 13. We'll cover the other four next week. Love does not act unbecomingly. I think maybe the NIV says love is not rude. So I just came up with the word indecency because it kind of um, pulls together behavior that whether it's in the church or in society is uncivilized, lacks social graces, boorish, crude, uncouth. I mean, it's just what we look out and see in society that people are willing to just tolerate now, right? Sadly today, there's little social standards that we're willing to call something disgraceful. You know that. I was... um, Watching this week, there was a new show that ESPN's trying to save their sinking ship, and so they go out and buy this big talent and um, uh, these couple guys, and they're pretty crude, and I guess that's the thing that they're hoping draws people back in. But they had to actually put a disclaimer before the show started, and this is what it said. There may be some cuss words, because that's how humans in the real world talk. No shame. That's just how people in the real world talk. But that's not how we talk in here. That's not how we behave in here. If we're going to be salt and light in this world, there should be a distinct difference between what we're like in here and what the world's like out there. So when we get out there, we have a preserving quality. We have a light shining quality rather than that we get dimmed and we get, that gets kind of corroded away and we become just like the world. But it, it's funny. I think this one gets overlooked a lot probably on this list because, you know, what is it to be rude? What's at the heart of a rude Christian? Ever ask yourself that question? Well, it's not about mismanners. Let's take that off the table. But it is about the manner in which you carry yourself. And being others aware are willing to adjust to another person's preferences for their edification or in the world for their evangelization. So things that you might have said, hey, I was just raised that way. That's just how I talk. That's just my tone. That's just my tact. Well, what are you doing? You're just excusing away self-love. You're just saying, this is me. Deal with it. And that's what Paul is saying is indecent, rude. It's unbecoming. Rude behavior will wreak havoc in the church, and it will ruin our witness in society. So you think through some of these scenarios. The rude Christian going out to lunch today, barking at the waiter, snapping the finger, as if you going out to eat somehow has made you the mayor of Hickory and everybody's at your service. Like, bro, you're eating at Applebee's, right? But it's that rude behavior. And why it's really devastating is because that waiter saw you pray. And then the book and the thing, you left a really lousy tip. But they saw you pray. And you were rude. And then maybe they see you somewhere else. And maybe you forgot who they were. And you want to invite them to our church. It happens. Christian love is not rude. It could happen anywhere. It could happen in the line waiting at Publix or Target. It could happen in the church in a life group when you 
you, you're just unaware that, you know, the fourth time you've ghosted your life group and didn't show up and how that affects the group because your life is really, really, really busy, right? Nobody gets it except everybody else who has busy lives who at least can have the decency to give a few days advance notice that they can't make it because that person was going to prepare some food and make the house get ready. It's just rude behavior. It's, it's just not putting others above yourself. Young people with your parents getting easily annoyed at them for asking you a question, bugged, but that you can ask them a question anytime, place, for any need you have and expect them to always be right and ready at the quick? That's rude. Adults, parents, speaking to our kids in a condescending way when we're correcting them. That's like talking down to someone. You know? How does it make them feel? They're, they're created in God's image. God's given them wonderful brains. He's given them feelings and the way you talk down to them. How does that make them feel? How does that make them feel about the faith you proclaim? Don't be rude. So to pull this weed, and it's tough because it can be small in our eyes, we need other people to help us see it. Tone of voice, lack of tact. Um, just not being willing to maybe move in the direction of the person that has that request of you, that yes, it's a preference, but it's the fact that you just have no room to perhaps honor it in you. Could be a lack of love. Could be a lack of love. So those would be the first four. I think we've made some headway. But we do have to take this back to a place where we don't walk out of here with our heads down. Because that's not where the gospel leaves us. You know, the amazing thing about the gospel for the believer is that many of these traits that we're talking about today that we all can see in various ways and forms are the same things we had in us before coming to Christ, aren't they? That's really what blows my mind sometimes. When I sin, it's like, wait a second. It's like, I thought I was a different person. I thought I was changed. Well, I am, and hopefully the frequency of that sin diminishes in my sanctification. But the fact of the matter is, in the same way Christ forgave my sin when I was lost and on my own way, is now, wherever I am at today, he's saying, yeah, I I can forgive that too. If you bring it to me, I can work on it with you. My spirit can sanctify it in you. But if you just kind of resolve yourself to live the life you want to live right now the way you are, no matter your age, you're going to miss out on a lot of what God could use you for ministering to other people because it's all about edification of others. And we want to be Christ to the people around us. Now, if you're not in Christ here today, you may think, man, I mean, this is uh, like, I don't know if this is very compelling, this Christian thing. <laughs> like come in here and be told all the ways in which we love ourselves. And well, the only difference is that we, we, we bring our sins before the Lord. And not only does he forgive them, but he's the example we're to follow. Like, we don't come in here, if you're not a Christian here today and worship some really important person, some pastor, some leader in a church, we look to Christ today. I mean, that's what lifts us out of the situation we could be in in narcissism is we look up to Christ. And so if you're not in Christ here today, uh, this sermon, this message is just calling you to look to Christ. Look to Christ who was never jealous, 
I mean, you can't find anywhere in the gospel where he was in a spirit of competition. And um, he never boasted. He warned. And he had to tell, even at the cross, you know, I could call down legions, but I don't. He was telling the truth. You know, the old saying, it's not bragging if you can back it up. Like, he really could have backed it up in that moment. When they said, why don't you get yourself down from the cross? He could have. But we'd be sitting in our, here in our sin. Christ was not arrogant. He was never rude. That's why kids loved him. Sinners loved him. And he offers you himself today. In the state you're in exactly as you are. If you find yourself looking at this list and even convicted and seeing how maybe even the self-love that you've lived in for so long has been so destructive to relationships in your life and you don't know how to fix them, Christ can. But you have to call on him. You don't have to call on yourself. You have to call on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. His perfect life of love for your life of sin. He gives you his righteousness. He takes away your sin. There's no better deal than that. And he calls on you to trust him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. It's where we find the perfect love of kindness that did us good, the perfect patience of love that doesn't give us what we deserve. It's in Christ that we see the perfect example of never in a spirit of trying to call attention to himself other than trying to call sinners to see he's the savior. The ultimate act of doing something for someone else's good, to lay down their life so that someone else may live. There's no self-seeking in that. Christ, you did that for us. And you could draw a sinner to yourself to be saved today. So Spirit, work in their heart, convict them right where they sit, that they need your grace and mercy. They need your salvation. As any of us in Christ here know, we need it and still need every day. We ask this in his name. Amen.